Part nine of Full Speed Ahead by Henry B. Beston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part nine. Thirty three. The Raid by the River. The convoy of merchantmen, after a calm, quite uneventful voyage across the ambushed sea, put into a port on the channel for the night, and the following morning dispersed to their various harbors. Some sort of coast patrol boat, not much bigger than an admiral's launch, the words are those of my friend Steve Holzer of the armed guard, took the S.S. Snowden under her metaphorical wing and brought her up the Thames. This Snowden was one of a fleet of twelve spry little cramps named for the principal mountains of the kingdom, a smart, well-equipped, well-ordered product of the time. Steve, quick, clever, and alert, had got along capitally with the Limeys. His particular pals were a pair of twin lads about his own age, young, English, blonde, and gray-eyed. Young, slow to understand a joke, honest, good-tempered, and sincere. I have seen the postcard photograph of themselves, which they gave Steve as a parting gift. Steve himself is a Yankee from the word go, a genuine Yankee from somewhere along the coast of Maine. He stands somewhat below medium height, is lean-faced and lean-bodied. His eyes twinkle with a shrewd good humor. A great lad! He tells me that his people have been seafaring folk for generations. The Snowden, escorted by her tiny guard, ran down the coast, entered the Thames estuary, passed the barriers, and finally resigned herself to the charge of a tug. Late in the afternoon, the mass of London began to enclose them, and they became conscious of strange, somewhat foul, land smells. The soot in the air irritated their nostrils. The ship was docked close after dusk. The feeling of satisfaction which seizes on the hearts of seamen who have successfully brought a ship into port entered into their bosoms. Everybody was happy, happy at the retrospect of achievement, in the prospect of peace, security, good pay, and good times. Their vessel lay in a basin just off a great bend in the river, in a kind of gigantic concrete swimming pool, bordered with steel arc-light poles, planted in rows like impossibly perfect trees. To starboard, through another row of arc-poles and over a wall of concrete, they could see the dirty majesty of the great brown river and the square silhouetted bulks of the tenements and warehouses on the other side. To port lay a landing stage some two hundred feet wide, backed by a huge warehouse over whose dingy roof two immense chimneys towered like guardians. The space stank of horse. The river had lost the clean smell of the sea and breathed a reek of humanity and inland mire. A mean cobbled stone street led from a corner of the landing space past wretched tenements, fried fish shops, and pawnbrokers' windows exhibiting second-rate nautical instruments, concertinas, and fraternal emblems. It was all surprisingly quiet. Steve, hospitably invited to remain aboard, went to the starboard rail and stood studying the river. The last smoky light had ebbed from the sky. Night, rich and strewn with autumnal stars, hung over the gigantic city, and a moon just passing the first quarter hung close by the meridian, and shone reflected in the pool-like basin and the river's moving tide. One of the huge chimneys suddenly assumed a great creamy curling plume of smoke, 
which dissolved mysteriously into the exhalations of the city from down in the crew's quarters came the musical squeals of a concertina and occasional voices whose words could but barely be distinguished the arc lights by the basin edge suddenly flowered into a dismal glow of whitish yellow light strangled by the opaque hoods and undercups affixed by the anti-aircraft regulations another concertina sounded further down the street the moonlight like a kind of supernal benediction fell on smokestack and funnel on shining gray wire and solemn rusted anchor on burnished capstan and finger smooched door heat haze flowing in a swift and glassy river shone above the smokestack in the moon suddenly steve heard down the street a sustained note from something on the order of a penny whistle and an instant later a window was flung up and a figure leaned out it was too dark to see whether it was a man or a woman then the same whistle was blown again several times as if by a conscientious boy and a factory siren with a sobbing human cry rose over the warehouses at the same moment the lights about the dock flickered clicked and died there was a confused noise of steps behind there were voices hey listen what's that the last in pure cockney and a questioning doubting thomas voice said a raid the figure of the captain was seen on the bridge one of the ship's boys went hurrying round doing something or other probably closing doors the twins strolled over to steve and informed him in the most casual manner that they were in for a raid it was steve's first introduction to british unemotionalism and i imagine that it rather let him down he says that he himself was right up on his tiptoes he also had a notion that bombs would begin to rain from the sky directly after the warning the twins soon made it clear however that the warning was given when the raiders were picked up on the east coast and that there was generally some twenty minutes or half an hour to wait before the show began every once in a while somebody in the group would steal a look at the pale worlds beyond the serried chimney-pots and at the moon guiltless accomplice of the violence and imbecilities of men presently a number of star-shells burst in fountains of coppery bronze every hatch covered every port and window sealed the snowden awaited the coming of the raiders whistles continued to be heard faint and far away from no word tone or gesture of that english crew could one have gathered that they were in the most dangerous quarter of the city for the one indispensable element of a london raid is the attack on the waterfront the attack on the ships the ships of wood the ships of steel the hollow ships through which imperial britain lives there is little to be seen in a london raid unless you happen to be close by something struck by a bomb the affair is almost entirely a strange and terrible movement of sound a rising catastrophic tide of sound a flood of thundering tumult a slow and sullen ebb there hear that said someone far away on the edge of the essex marshes and the moonlit sea a number of anti-aircraft guns had picked up the raiders the air was full of a faint sullen murmur continuous as the roar of ocean on a distant beach 
searchlight beams sweeping swift and mechanical appeared over london the pale rays searching the black islands between the dimmed constellations like figures of the blind they descended rose glared met melted together the sullen roaring grew louder and nearer no longer a blend but a sustained crescendo of pounding sounds and muffled crashes a belated star shell broke and was reflected in the river a police boat passed swiftly and noiselessly a solitary red spark floating from her funnel as she sped the roaring gathered strength the guns on the coast were still now one heard the guns on the inland moors the guns in the fields beyond quiet little villages the guns lower down the river they were following the river now the guns in the outer suburbs now the guns in the very london spaces ring crash tinkle roar pound the great city flung her defiance at her enemies steve became so absorbed in the tumult that he obeyed the order to take shelter below quite mechanically a new sound came screaming into their retreat a horrible kind of whistling zoom followed by a heavy pound steve was told that he had heard a bomb fall somewhere down the river nearer instant by instant crept the swift deadly menace a lonely fragment of an anti-aircraft shell dropped clanging on the steel deck you see explained one of the twins in the careful passionless tone that he would have used in giving street instructions to a stranger the huns are on their way up the river dropping a kettle on any boat that looks like a good mark and trying to set the docks afire the docks always get it listen there was a second zoom and a third close on its heels those are probably on the etna basins said the other twin their aim's beastly rotten as a rule if this light were out we might be able to see something from a hatchway mr millen the first mate makes an awful fuss if he finds anyone on deck i know what's what let's go to the galley there's a window there can't be shut the three lads stole off beneath a lamp turned down to a bluish-yellow flame the older seaman waited placidly for the end of the raid and discussed sailor fashion a hundred irrelevant subjects the darkened space grew chokingly thick with tobacco smoke and the truth of it was that every single sailor in there knew that the last two bombs had fallen on the etna basins and that the snowden would be sure to catch it next by a trick of the gods of chance the vessel happened to be alone in the basin and presented a shining mark the lads reached the galley window by crowding in shoulder to shoulder they could all see the pool and its concrete wall were hidden the window opened directly on the river presently came a lull in the tumult and during it steve heard a low monotonous hum the song of the raiding plains more fragments of shrapnel fell upon the deck the moon had travelled westward and lay large and golden well clear of the town the winter stars bright and inexorable had advanced the city was fighting on suddenly the three boys heard the ominous aerial whistle one of the twins slammed the window too and an instant later there was a sound within the dark little galley as if somebody had touched off an enormous invisible rocket a frightful zoom and impact silence they guessed what had happened a bomb intended for the snowden had fallen in the river 
later somewhere on land was heard a thundering crash which shook the vessel violently a pan or something of the kind hanging on the galley wall fell with a startling crash get out of here you boys called the cook ship's galleys are sacred places and are to be respected even in air raids and then even more slowly and gradually than it had gathered to a flood the uproar ebbed the firing grew spasmodic ceased within the city limits lingered as a distant rumble from the outlying fields and finally died away altogether the sailors released by a curt order came on deck the top of the concrete wall was splashed and mottled with dark puddles and spatters of water all agreed that the bomb had fallen bloody close the peace of the abyss rules above far down the river there was an unimportant fire said steve i certainly was sore when i didn't have any excitement on the way over in the convoy but after that night in the snowden i decided that being with the armed guard let you in for some real stuff it's a great service with which opinion all who know the guard will agree thirty four on having been both a soldier and a sailor when this cruel war is over and the mad rounds of parades banquets and reunions begin i shall immediately set to work to organize the most exclusive of clubs a mocking and envious friend suggests that our uniform consists of a white sailor hat a soldier's tunic british french or american according to the flags under which we served and a pair of sailor trousers with an extra wide flare for the club is to be composed of those fortunate souls who like myself have seen the show on land and on sea to my mind however instead of mixing the uniforms it would be better to dress in khaki when we feel military in blue when our temperament is nautical think of belonging to a club whose members can dissect a trench mortar with ease and at the same time say three points off the port bow without turning a hair i should admit marines only after a special consideration of each case not that i don't admire the marines i do i yield to no one in my admiration of our gallant devil dogs but the applicant for admission to our club must have first served as a bona fide soldier and then as a bona fide sailor or vice versa not that i am a sailor or ever was a sailor in uncle sam's navy all that i can claim to have been is a correspondent attached to the navy over there but four months service most of it spent at sea on the destroyers subs and battleships entitles me i think to membership consequently being president i have admitted myself well you've seen the war both on land and on sea which service do you prefer the army or the navy this question is hurled at me everywhere i go i answer it with deliberation enjoying the while to the full the consciousness of being an extraordinary person a sort of literary aeneas multum jacatus et terris et alto and i answer briefly the navy i hasten to add however that you will find my answer coloured by a passion for the beauty and the mystery of the sea with which some good spirit endowed me in my cradle i was born in one of the most historic of new england seacoast towns where brine was anciently said to flow through the veins of the inhabitants on midsummer days the fierce heat distills from the cracked caked mud of tidal meadows the clean salty smell of the unsullied sea 
dark ships trailing far behind them long dissolving plumes of smoke weave in and out between the tawny whale-backed islands of the bay and tame little seabirds almost the color of the shingle run along at the edge of the incoming tide so i admit a bias for the service of the sea does the navy demand as much of the sailor as the army does of the soldier a vexed question the army comparing grimly its own casualty lists with the navy's occasional roll sometimes imagines naturally enough that the sailor lives as the old hymn has it on flowery beds of ease as a whole there is no denying that living conditions are far better in the naval service though much depends on the boat to which the sailor is assigned a soldier in the trenches sleeps in his clothes so does a sailor on a destroyer or a patrol boat and i do not believe that i felt much more comfortable at the end of a long trip in an old destroyer during which the vessel rolled pitched tossed careened stood on her head sat on her tail and buckled than i did after a week or so at the front certainly there was little to choose between the overcrowded living quarters of the sailors and a decent dugout true the toto alias greyback alias cootie or his occasional but less famous accomplice the crimson rambler does not infest a navy ship how many times have i not heard army folk say in heartfelt tones those navy people can keep clean but a truce to the cootie much more has been made of him than he deserves during the first six months of the war the creature was in evidence but after the hostilities began to limit themselves to the trench slave and this localizing war made possible a stable system of hospitals cantonments and baths the cootie became as rare as a day in june and to have such guest was an indication of abysmally bad luck or personal uncleanliness moreover a little gasoline begged from a lorry driver and sprinkled on one's clothes confers unconditional immunity consider the crew of a submarine they do not have to splash about in a gully of smelly mud the consistency of thick soup or wander down alleyways of red-brown mud so cheesy that it sticks to the boots till one no longer lifts feet from the ground but shapeless heavy thrice-cussed lumps of mire no one has yet risen to sing the epic of the mud of france yet tis the soul of the war the submarine sailors are spared the mud but they live in a sealed cylinder into which sunlight does not penetrate live in the close atmosphere of a garage they cannot get exercise or change clothes a submarine crew that has had a hard time of it looks quite as worn out as soldiers just out of battle and their colour is far worse and if there is a more heroic service than this submarine patrol i should like to know of it and now the army in me rises to protest i admit says the military voice that service on ships may be a confounded sight more disagreeable than i had imagined but the sailor has a chance when he gets to port of changing his uniform whilst a poor lad of a soldier must fight eat and sleep in the same old uniform and must limit his changes to a change of underclothes true o military spirit civilian and thou too o sailor do thou know what it is to be confined to be wedded without jest till death do us part to one suit one faithful persistent necessary uniform and one only 
two-thirds of the joy of permission is the pleasure of getting out of a dirty stale besweated uniform heaven bless heaven shower a niagara of happiness on those kindly ladies who sent us supplies of socks and jerseys don't be content to knit johnny's socks and a sweater keep on knitting him a number of them and send them over at intervals the dandies of a section used to leave extra clothes in villages behind the lines alas sometimes the group after service old tranchiers was not marched back to the same village and it was difficult to get permission to visit the other village even were it near such expedients however are for luxurious times quite often there are no habitable villages for miles behind the lines or else the civilian inhabitants have been ruthlessly warned away in such circumstances there is no clean cache of clothes to be left behind in madame's closet but the sailor though he returns as grimy as a printer's devil and as bearded as a comic tramp there is always a clean suit of liberty blues in his bag and to-morrow clad in the handsomest of all naval uniforms he will be found ashore breaking fair british or irish hearts i have tried to show that in the judgment of an ex-soldier the difference between the life of a sailor in a fighting ship and the life of a soldier in a fighting regiment is by no means as great as it has been imagined the army i suppose will grumble at such a pronunciamento let an objector then try being a lookout man all winter long on a destroyer or try firing a while all is not quite purgatorial even at the front most army men know of quiet places along the lines held on our side by rubicund wine-bibbing middle-aged french territorial bon pierre de famille who show you pictures of etienne and maurice and garrisoned on the enemy's border by fat old huns who want very very much to get home to their great pipe and steaming sauerkraut in such places each side apologizes for the bad taste of their supporting artillery whilst grenade throwing is regarded as the bottom level of viciousness once in a while people die there of old age gout or chronic liver no one is ever killed such entente cordiales were far more frequent than those behind the line have ever suspected on the other hand some twenty miles down the trench swathe there may be a hillock constantly contested a strategic point which burns up the lives of men as casually as the sustaining of a fire consumes faggots now it is the quick merciful bullet in the head now the hot whizzing eclat of a high explosive now the earthquake of the subterranean mine but above all a mine at sea is no more gentle than one on land and to have a mine exploded under him is perhaps the eventuality which a soldier fears more than anything else on land the thundering release of a giant breath from out of the earth a monstrous pall of fragments of soil stones and dust perhaps of fragments more ghastly at sea a thundering pound a column of water which seems to stand upright for a second or two and then falls crashing on whatever is left of the vessel quel monde there is a distinct difference between the psychology of the soldier and that of the sailor a soldier of any army is sure to be drilled and drilled and drilled again till he becomes what he ought to be a cog in an immense machine scientifically designed for the release of violence 
a sailor drilled scientifically enough but not so mechanically preserves some of the ancient freedom of the sea then too the soldier with his bayonet is a fighting force the sailor though prepared for it himself rarely fights but works a fighting mechanism the ship the battleship x may sink the cruiser y but there is rarely a corps a corps such as takes place for instance in a disputed shell crater thus removed from the baser brutalities of war the sailor never reveals that vein of berserker savagery which soldiers will often reveal in a conquered province as a class sailors are the best-natured good-hearted souls in the world rough some may be some may be scamps but brutal never moreover living under a discipline easier to bear than the soldiers jack has not the sullen streaks that overtake betimes men under arms of course he grumbles enlisted men are not normal if they don't grumble but jack's grumbling is as nothing compared to the fierce smothered hate for things in general which every soldier sometimes feels i would follow the sea because i am a lover of the mystery and beauty of the sea and because my comrades would be sailormen i would knock at the navy's door because after all is said and done the naval power is the ultima ratio of this titanic affair i have seen many of the great scenes of this war among them verdun on the first night of the historic battle but nothing that i saw on land impressed me as did my first view of the british grand fleet in its northern harbour the dark ships the hollow ships rulers of the past rulers of the future unconquered and unconquerable end of part nine end of full speed ahead tales from the log of a correspondent with our navy by henry b beston